Hello world, welcome back to the PocketGamer.biz podcast. I'm your host, Brian Baglow, Managing Editor at PocketGamer.biz. And joining me this morning, we have Kai, our editor. Good morning, Kai. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Very well. It's a pleasure to be back and talking to the denizens of the internet once more about the great and glorious world of mobile gaming. This morning, we're going to be talking to to one of the big players uh, in the the field. We've got uh, Google joining us this morning. And of course, they've just uh, released their mobile insight report where they went out and interviewed 23,000 players around the world about their likes, their dislikes, their motivations, their drives and all of the fun things that keeps them playing. And in such a hugely competitive market, that that's really incredibly valuable insight. It is. It's, um, it's also important to note that this is 23,000 players that identify primarily as mobile gamers rather than throughout the, the suite of uh, the entire gaming ecosystem. So the, the data that they've collected is uh, pretty insightful. Yeah, and and this is the thing. I think, in in terms of the the, the games net, uh, the games industry, they tend to still look at the consoles and the PC end of the market as kind of the pinnacle, is the peak. But we've had so much data coming through recently that really highlights the power and the growth in mobile gaming as really one of the primary drivers that's bringing in the next billion gamers. Precisely. I mean, mobile gaming already encompasses more than twice the market share of console and PC gaming. And uh, I believe Data AI's uh, latest uh, research speculates that mobile gaming will come to represent around 61% of the entire gaming ecosystem. So uh, it's certainly not a time to underestimate the mobile games industry or its player base. And I, th- I think for me, one of the really interesting things is it has such a diversity of content, different types of experience. You know, the fact that one of the most popular game types, hyper casual, are essentially disposable, throwaway games created, in some sense, for non-gamers. It, it, it's a completely different mindset. And I understand, on one hand, why some of our colleagues and peers who have kind of come from the, the more traditional PC console, you know, major um, scale projects, are unconvinced, shall we say, by, by mobile and see it as, as just a sea of, of irrelevant content. But for me, it really kind of highlights the fact that there's an enormous market out there. Everybody's playing. It's not just your core gamers. It's dads and dogs and dentists and bus drivers and grannies and all sorts of people who would never, ever, ever go out and pick up a controller or, or pay for a, a, an Xbox. And it gives them something that, that scratches that little itch. It, it's something that they want to go, they want to spend five or ten minutes playing. Um, I mean, this is the reason that over the course of the pandemic, gaming boomed. Because all of a sudden, dis- people all around the world discovered that if you've got time to kill, then there is a game, regardless of your interests, regardless of your core, um, you know, hobbies or, or pastimes, there will be a game out there for you. We've seen some recent hiccups with uh, the attempts to bring some core gaming franchises to mobile. Uh, I think the most recent example we can look to is uh, the backlash against Diablo Immortal. But I think you highlighted something very important with regards to the diversity of experiences on mobile, which is really reaching, it's speaking to a much more diverse audience base. I think that's something that is important to to highlight and also part of what is investigated in Google's mobile insights report, kind of breaking down what it is that compels people to start mobile games, to download mobile games, and how players are finding mobile games. 
you're absolutely correct. And I think there is a real um, lesson to be learned um, for, for Activision Blizzard in the launch of Diablo because, uh, you know, simply slapping a franchise onto mobile and looking at the, the sort of the, the popular monetization mechanisms and the pay-to-play and the freemium and going, okay, we'll have that. And then doing it in a way which is not necessarily sympathetic to the player, uh, but can indeed, you know, potentially be seen as exploitative, um, is is a mistake that I think a lot of the larger games publishers um, have come across, or if they haven't already, that they may well in the near future. Because you you can't just look at mobile as a homogenous whole, and you can't look at it as a, a bunch of gullible idiots who will, you know lap up whatever microtransaction you want to throw their way. Um, it's a really sophisticated and demanding audience that can have a completely different uh, set of, of wants and needs and desires uh, and, and limitations, let's be honest. And uh, yeah, it's, I think there's there's a lot that uh, other larger companies could, could learn from looking at Diablo and, uh, you know, some of the other free-to-play and microtransaction models that have been implemented by, by la- their larger peers and colleagues. And I think it's a good lesson for larger gaming companies to not rest on their laurels. Um, Blizzard has a very healthy participation in the mobile space with the success of Hearthstone. And uh, with our chats with the Warcraft Arclight Rumble team and their plans for monetization, they are very cognizant of again, the player sensibilities and having a certain sensitivity to, well, encouraging people to uh, engage with your IAPs, which is why I think it's, re- it's really surprising how, uh, how it's been implemented in Diablo Immortal. But as I say, a great lesson not to, uh, not to rest on your laurels and think you've got this solved. Yeah, and and this is one of the points that comes up in in the interview that we're going to be coming into in the next couple of minutes with Greg Hartrell from Google. Um, it's challenging getting a game out there, and regardless of your track record, regardless of how well you've done in the past, unless you are paying attention to the really rapidly evolving um, mobile marketplace and and the unique challenges it it presents, you can end up tripping over your own feet. And and for any company that's interested in not just sustainability and existing until the next game, but but growing and finding that you know global audience, they really should be be, be listening to some of the some of the insights and some of the uh, wisdom bombs that Greg uh, will be dropping. So let's move straight on to that interview, shall we? For this episode, we are welcoming Greg Hartrell, and Greg is the director of product management at Google Play and Android. And I'm going to be chatting to him after this short break. PocketGamer.biz publishes a regular developer survey in which we explore the activities, expertise and areas of interest to game creators, developers and publishers all around the world. Um, However, Google's recent Mobile Insights report flips this around and explores the behaviours, motivations and opinions of the players out there. And they've surveyed over 23,000 gamers all around the world. It's an entirely complementary approach to what we do and provides some really detailed insight into the reasons why gamers are playing games, how they find new games, their attitudes to content, advertising and even what makes them rage quit. 
So for those of you who want to dig deeper into the Mobile Insight report, you can check it out at games.withgoogle.com and look for the reports tab. So having said that, this afternoon we're going to be looking at smartphones and mobile devices. And those gorgeous pieces of technology have radically changed the landscape for the video games industry worldwide. And it's probably important to talk about the nuts and bolts of what it takes to be successful as a mobile games business as the market gets ever more filled with content and ever more challenging. And with all the volatility and ups and downs, we wanted to bring in somebody who could offer perspective on what it takes to thrive and find stability in such a rapidly evolving marketplace. And for your core businesses, for the developers and publishers out there, someone who has visibility into the entire game development lifecycle And of course, Android and Google Play are a big, big part of this market. So who better to talk to than the product director for games on Android and Play, Greg Hartrell. Good afternoon, Greg. Greetings, Brian. It's great to to be here and thanks for for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for for coming on board. And the the people of the internet can't see the the astonishing decoration, but you are basically in front of a a large-scale map of Middle-earth. So while we're talking, I'm just appreciating the mountains of Mordor and the depths of the Shire. So congratulations, you're winning this season of the podcast in terms of decor so far. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad that there's an award to be given out. Uh, no, 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 we, uh, I jokingly describe that, you know, for, for those of you, uh, you know, we don't have the video, you know, I got this rather large Middle Earth map on the wall of my home office and... You know, I joke that Lord of the Rings fans will immediately recognize it as a map of Middle Earth, and and there's another cohort of people who would identify it as a, an ancient, you know, ancient cartography. That somehow I'm into maps, and and then I have to point out that the the ashes of Mount Doom will will blow in from the uh, from the east if they're not careful. <laughs> we have marauding hordes of orcs coming in from the west, while from uh, Saruman's Keep, it, yeah. Okay. Well, it's a it's a lovely piece of work. So thank you very much. But before we we actually start chatting, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, who you are, and what it is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think uh, you've already mentioned that I'm a product director for games on Android and Google Play. I've been Google for the last nine or so years, um, mostly on games. I briefly ran uh, Google's books business as well, which is a really fascinating. Uh, four years of my career. Prior to that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been in video games, primarily in video game platforms for the vast majority of my career. Um, a lot of that was cultivated being the product lead for the the backbone of Xbox Live during the Xbox 360 era. Uh, and then in startup land and in, in kind of small companies, I, I, I did a tour of duty in a startup that was involved in skilled based games and paid wagering uh, later, you know, uh, made games for for Capcom and, and their mobile subsidiary, uh, Beanline Interactive, um, and then since I've I've been I've been at Google. Fantastic, and and your role at Google it's like what uh, what sort of areas are you looking after? Yeah, it, it, great question. The the you know anybody who thinks about game making understands that it's there's a complicated tech stack to build a thriving mobile game business, and so you know my. My team span everything from the core Android operating system, the graphics stack, and the tools that you use to make high-performing native experiences to um, the experiences that we use to distribute games you know, for Google Play, um, including how we bring games to, to large screens. 
uh, and then a variety of tools and services that help developers and publishers market and promote their games. And so you can think of it as like a, a life cycle point of view of how we make games possible on, on Android and, and Google Play. Fantastic. That that's that's amazing. And and of course, you know, mobile is a huge and growing part of that uh, of the the whole global mobile games market uh, the whole global games market and indeed just this week we had new data coming out that shows that mobile is now outstripping other areas of gaming that were traditionally thought of as kind of the heartland you know the consoles and PC and of course the game sector proved itself not just to be covid proof but positively boomed as people discovered uh, when they were stuck at home discovered that games can be really good fun and so we have we've reached yeah. gamers in so many new markets and so many parts of the globe. So, so how has that opportunity changed things for game developers? Yeah, I think I think that the you kind of alluded to it in the opening, right? That you know we we see that mobile has helped make video games a global phenomenon. Um, you, you know, many years ago, I started to observe that look like we we now live in an age where everyone's a gamer. For those of us who have been in the industry, that was not always so. Um, and, and I guess one, one of the obvious things is we have these really useful devices in everybody's pocket. You know, the, the perspective I bring perhaps to the table there is it can be really underappreciated how powerful these devices are. It, you know, it was not so long ago, I like to look up, you know, what we used to call supercomputers and they're, they're supercomputers today, but you know, 20, 30 years ago, these, you know, refrigerator like devices would sit on a data center floor and some of the required like liquid cooling and plumbing to just keep them up and running. And the device that, you know, you have, or I have in my pocket right now, in some cases are 10, 20, 30 times more powerful in computing power than those devices that we used to call supercomputers. You know, these are devices that started things like the Human Genome Project and were capable of, you know, incredible innovations for their for their time. And and now everyone's got one of those in their pocket. So so that that blows my mind on a normal day. Um, and then, you know, ironically, we we also use those devices to play video games, um, which is great. We 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 love video games. Uh, it's 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 really important for, you know, how you know, we, 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 we behave as humans and kind of, you know, some folks use it for relaxing and other people use them for, you know, improving their mental health. And, and, and so I think you, you're right to point out that, you know, a lot of game consoles and PCs perhaps pave the way for video games mm-hmm. in Western markets, but in non-Western markets, um, you know, especially with mobile, those those historical methods of acquiring a game or playing a game just never really got traction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to 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 offer some perspective there. You know, to take a look at regions like Brazil, you know, Indonesia, India, Mexico. Um, a lot of the growth of personal computing and video games has been dramatic there on the backs of devices made by. OEMs like Oppo, Vivo, you know, there's the Android Go edition. And that's offered game makers tremendous reach. Uh, Android, as a result, has, I think we shared publicly, 3 billion monthly active devices worldwide. It's an enormous opportunity compared to anything that came before it. Um, And, you know, it's a really eclectic ecosystem. You can spend, you know, $1,000 on an Android device. You can spend $30 on an Android device. 
Um, and, and, and so I think what we, when you ask the question of like, you know, how does that change the opportunity for game developers? You have these supercomputers in your pocket. They're available worldwide. Um, and, and now what we see is that games that are wildly successful, this era of video games have optimized for the maximal of those devices and regions in, in a combination of the tech, the content that they build and the, the pricing strategies that they, they approach. And that's created like entirely new billion dollar enterprises. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really admire studios like Garena and Moonton come to us, you know, in Korea and, and so many more. And when I, when I step back and I just look at the numbers, like these are mobile games that are rivaling the active user base and revenue of the entirety of console platforms just by themselves. So it's just, it's, it's really a 10 X opportunity for video game makers. I, th- I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's it's only really once you kind of appreciate the size, the scale, the penetration of the mobile market that you really start to see where the next billion gamers are coming from. You know, they're they're not going to be jumping into the PlayStation or, or the Xbox, and it's going to be mobile that's the gateway. You know, it's they're they're coming through there, and even if it's not, um, you know, gaming's not the primary use for their phone, the fact that games are there is really starting to open things up. And I, and I think you, you're absolutely spot on. It's a, a huge, huge um, opportunity for, for game developers and creators all around the world. But because there are so many more developers, so many more creators out there, let's expand on, on what those um, creators have to do when they go global. What is it they're doing to make or build games differently? Yeah, that's fascinating because you're right. Like if you're if you're in a you know, with a 10x opportunity and the ability to reach billions of users, you, you, we really have observed that as a game maker, you have to approach game making differently. Um, I, th- I think, you know, in my console days, you could afford to think about a homogenous device ecosystem. You could afford to focus on a few different regions. And, and I guess, I guess, I guess I'd start by saying there's two broad reasons. The, the first is, is, Unlike any era before in video game, it's really important to identify your audience. And then I guess a second one, which I'll get to, which would be how do you design for um, free-to-play and ads friendliness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, like identifying the audience is interesting because, you know, I mentioned, you know, my early in my career was, you know, on, on Xbox and um, had this great opportunity to work with, you know, smart people early days of like the Xbox 360 launch era. And, you know, I, n- I never had a conversation with a developer where it was like, Hey, what audience are you targeting? Because in those days it was implied that they were targeting 18 to 35, 18 to 45 year old males. And all the games involved like punching each other in the face and shooting each other. In the face. <laughs> like that was that, that's just the way it was. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, if nothing explodes, it's not really a video game. Exactly. Right. And, and, and so, so fast forward to today when you have billions of devices and everybody is capable of playing video games and is interested, you suddenly have all this genre diversity that like, it's just really, you know, it started really, you know, seven or eight years ago for me, you know, seeing different audiences getting different type of games. And so, so that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. A close affinity to identifying your audience is understanding like the device classes that they have, you know, in their hands, right? And so I think, you know, if we remember like the success of World of Warcraft, um, you know, and how they succeeded to scale, a big part of that I think was, you know, the mechanics and the cartoon aesthetics, like making the experience more accessible, 
But we also have to remember that a big part of that was in targeting the low end of the PC ecosystem. And, you know, now the, the, the equivalent in that ecosystem meant that they, they targeted those low end specs, but there was, you know, high interest for users to play good MMORPGs on those devices. And so mobile is that it's that 10 and it's 10 X. And so what we find is, is that you gotta, you gotta build for the broadest relevant devices, including low spec phones. And that ends up being a bit of a secret sauce for, for game developers today. Uh, and, and, you know, like on the Android side, like we, we, you know, we launched the Android game development kit. We have these adaptive tools and frameworks to help, you know, uh, a game adapt to the hardware that it finds itself on. Um, but I think a big part of that too is game designers who are savvy are ready to at least design for that low end spec device if not as part of their launch strategy, simply to give them optionality later. Of course, um, so yeah. just, you know, you, you can, you can figure out how to build a high state, highly stable experience for the devices you're on, but you got to think about it in advance. And, and sorry, I, I realized the, the, the second thing that I mentioned is designing for ads friendliness, you know, free to play is a big part of a reason why the mobile ecosystems really grew really quickly. Um, there's free to play game loops that are done very well, very sophisticated. And it, you know, allows the games that are played for, you know, for free for, for many, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of hours. And you can monetize, you know, the people who, who want to pay play, or you can convince to play ads ends up being a really important angle. I, I think in the early parts of early days of mobile ads were kind of clumsy, you know, the, very much the, the so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, 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 you know, we remember experiences like, you know, weird pop-ups and weird display ads. And now now I'm seeing that there's, you know, both from a user acquisition perspective and alternative monetization, let's say with rewarded ads, it's bringing games to new heights because you can you can still give your game away for free. There's still a paid audience who's like, "Look, I just don't want to see ads and I'm I'm, I'm in. I love your game. I want to I want to, you know, monet, I want to pay to to get more." And then there's this middle ground where there's free users who are absolutely comfortable saying, yeah, I'll take a break, watch a video and get free lives or extra resources in my game to keep going. And that ends up being like a, another part of the secret sauce. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it allows you to realize value from every part of your audience. Exactly. Right. And I, and I think, again, it's just another consequence of, you know, when you're, you're trying to build a product that can scale in theory to billions of users you got to think about all those those demographics. You got to think about that large audience and how you can build an experience that can cater to everyone. Very much so, and I think for most of the developers out there, it, it has to be seen as an opportunity. You know, it's no longer that you have a single model that's retail. It's you pay up front before you get access to the game. It's giving you so many different options and real flexibility when it comes to your game design and uh, the choices that you have on how. You find value from your players and, and it's inclusive as well, you know, because it's no longer only the people who can afford your game can access it. As long as you're being um, smart about how you monetize, you can open your game up to an audience that would never otherwise have shelled out, opened their wallets and pocketbooks and or, or you know, given it a second's thought. Exactly. No, I think that's that's an astute observation, Brian. It's really interesting. It kind of leads me on very neatly um, to the next topic, Greg, which is more and more of the games out there are are now 
no longer dead services, uh, dead products, they're live services. You know, so a game comes out and you can interact with it. It's updated on an ongoing basis. There are events, all sorts of fun things like that. And and we know as a sector, we know that fostering communities and investing in that live ops aspect is really important when expanding internationally and reaching that um, global audience. So how are the top developers in, in mobile um, approaching this? Yeah, it's a great perspective. I, I guess I guess you got to think a bit a bit about like how the life cycle of game making has changed, right? So mm-hmm. so maybe a few, you know, a few observations. Um, one is is you got to think about like how do you build up to you know uh, having a community to interact with. In many ways, you, today's video gamers. They, they don't just want a game dropped at their front door. They they almost want to have a relationship with the creators. They want to have that relationship with the community of people that fall in love with your game. One perspective is, is like the hidden stuff that happens before you launch a game. And mm-hmm. so in mobile, very common for games to, you know, have like these skunk workers accounts and anonymously testing games with small audiences. Sometimes you will call that like white labeling you know, just killing projects quickly that, you know, obviously aren't fun or performing. And then, you know, dark launching games into different regions is, is pretty, pretty important for mimicking your highest growth regions. Um, and, you know, part, you starts building that community through like a pre-registration experience, right? Um, you know, I, re- I remind people that like in the, the height of like the game, GameStop days and, and, and walking into your local retail store, there was, there was a binder, you know, of all the games that you could, you could see that we're coming out in the next several months or sometimes for the whole year. And one of the first things people do is walk up to the counter and open up the binder and look at all those dates. Um, and so, you know, the modern day equivalent for that is like coming into, you know, a destination like the play store and saying like, Hey, like what, what, it, what are the games that are coming out in the next three to six months and like being part of those hype cycles. But I think that all that is to say that, you know, as, as you're building a game differently and leading up to those cycles, with so many options to play, you you need to be thinking about how you're going to win over that audience and build a relationship with them well after your launch. You know, so when you ask like, what are top mobile game developers doing to, you know, foster those communities and you know take advantage of things like live ops? Um, you know, I, I think the the biggest observation for me is just how the composition of game and production teams had to change to cater to and, and foster that, that, that light, that part of the life cycle. So the old school way of thinking was, you know, this monolithic development team, they're the ones who do all the updates and you kind of just have to wait for the content to be built and, and released as downloadable content packs and, and the like. And, and the more sophisticated developers, they have, you know, production teams where there, there are, you know, product managers and marketers and designers with access to really interesting tools that keep this live operations, you know, rhythm of events going while that core engineering team is building entirely new experiences for their game. So what does that look like? I guess, you know, um, obviously there's a variety of live programming tools. Some of them are homegrown. Some of them are, are third-party services. And you you need to have, you know, to have a pipeline of fresh, you know, daily, weekly, you know, uh, uh, events and and, and, and content um, that, that basically keep your audience entertained before those next big updates. Uh, and, and, you know, what does that look like? You've got things like time-based offers, you know, a content roadmap that's planned, you know, down to the week, uh, production and creative teams that are 
you know, constantly working on copy and assets. And maybe the last thing I'd say is, you know, the, the, the more sophisticated ones get into down to targeting those events, especially the key cultural moments, seasonal events, you know, targeting the audiences and, and you know, running experiments in which live operations events resonate with the right audience. And it's the way that you get, you know, the bigger peaks and the, and the, the, the more sustained business outcomes that you're looking for. Again, I think you've absolutely captured it. Um, I remember way back in the olden days when uh, the, the the day your game launched was the day that the entire studio went on holiday for a fortnight. But of course now, launch day is just when everything shifts into almost an even higher level of uh, activity because all of a sudden you have a live audience there who are you have expectations that are increasingly high and they're going to want that kind of responsiveness. They want to know that you're out there, that, that they matter to you as, as the game developer, the game creator. So, um, yeah, it's one of these, it's one of these issues where I think developers can ignore it at their peril. Um, but of course, one of the things that this is also opening up is, is the notion of cross platform. And so for a growing number of developers and publishers out there, they want to see their game on devices other than phones. So what kind of trends are we seeing when it comes to cross-platform, cross-device play? Yeah, in many ways, it kind of comes full circle where I guess one of the insights would be from like Google's mobile insights report, you know, particularly mature markets, you know, up to 70% of mobile players around the globe indicate that they they swap between screens mm-hmm. um, and, and and they they play across platforms and plan to do so in the future um, and so I think you know an exa- another example of that is you know although Android certainly drives trillions of minutes of gameplay per month we saw Chrome OS and Chromebooks become the second most used laptop and desktop operating system in the world and and a big part of that was led by you know game usage, being up, you know, 50% year over year on, on Chrome OS. Um, and so I, I think that when you look at those regions, you, you, sometimes I like to joke that, you know, we've hit peak screen, you know, not, it's not true in all regions, but in those mature markets, you have folks who are like, look, um, I, I love my mobile device. I love the games that I play on my mobile device, but sometimes, you know, I want to switch to that laptop. I want to switch to that desktop. Maybe I'm a student working on a term paper. Maybe I'm at work. Um, and maybe, maybe I need to procrastinate while I, I grind away at my game in the background. <laughs> um, and so, and, and, and so that the, the user needs absolutely there, uh, but then also developers told us that too. They said like, look, I, I, I'm, I, you know, mobiles made me very successful and I really like that. How do I, how do I access those users in a big way? It ends up becoming a challenge because there's a lot of complexity. I think Brian, as you know, like supporting additional platforms, there's an ROI issue there. You have to hire talent that needs to know how to build and publish and grow on a variety of platforms. So, so I think you know ROI is something that we we think very much about, and and uh, so the needs there, but it, but it's it's not easy to to seize that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's another challenge for developers. The opportunity is there, but it's equaled by the the challenge in making sure you have those those skills and capabilities and experience in house or you know, potentially accessible through a, a third party. But um, so I, earlier this year, um, I saw Google Play Games for PC was announced back around January, I think. So it looks like Google is, is, is actually doing more to help developers extend their reach across different devices and platforms. 
Yeah, that's that, that's a great observation. We announced it back in January, and Google Play Games for PC is is basically Google Play Games um, on on Windows, um, and what that allows you know our our mobile users to do is to reach gamers who are looking for that cross device experience. Um, it's going quite well. I mean, we're, we're currently in in uh, beta in Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. More regions are coming soon. Um, the user satisfaction rates are great. Uh, they just, you know, maybe not, uh, maybe it's intuitive, but they just love the ability to switch between their phone and a large screen experience. It's just super convenient. It's helpful to have that continuity of experience. So all the games are cloud synced and, you know, you have all your achievements and play points and rewards and all of the, the stuff that you get, you know, from play from your mobile device, but now also on your, your PC, and it's still very early days. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're really focused on making a great experience. We have early partners that have brought games that are, you know, they already have hundreds of millions of players to the table. And, and we're helping them grow even further on more screens with really little additional development. A lot of the development that you have to do is, you know, a few weeks of an engineer's time. Um, and, and it helps you get a game that works on Chromebooks and happens to work on, on Windows as well. That's amazing. And, and I mean, obviously, it puts your game in front of a, a much larger audience. But, but outside that, why is it important for, for mobile developers to, to consider building cross-platform experiences and kind of moving beyond the phone? Yeah, I, like, I think the, the illusion you have there is like, hey, like if I'm doing great on phones, like, you know, maybe I just stick with phones, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think... For every developer, it's different, but it, but I think it goes back to that insight that you know you have users who have high expectations. Um, they, they you want to meet them where they are. Um, we in those markets where there's mobile, laptop, desktop switching. Um, you you want a way to you want a way to increase your addressable market, right? So when you think about it from that a user's point of view they're going to go switch to one of those devices. And if your game's not available on them, you're, you're, you're going to be out of sight, out of mind. And so, you know, designing a game that plays well across phones, tablets, laptops, desktops is achievable. Now it's a way to increase that, that TAM. Like my advice would be like, look, start with phones and tablets. Obviously if that's your wheelhouse, you should stick with it. It's if you've built a big business around it, stay focused but I think design teams can think about the input controls, the game balance, and what the game might look like on a large and small screen in advance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and then it just gives you that optionality to expand quickly later. Um, and I, I and I think especially for games with you know like multiplayer experiences, almost all of them do now. You you want to think about you know these are games that like they thrive because you have just like enormous player liquidity is, is sometimes called yeah, you know you have yeah, a, of course. an active user base um it's another way to think about you know the ROI for your game and so you know uh you're more likely to see friends who play together you're more likely to improve on matchmaking speed and improve the quality of experience when you're thinking about cross platform so so look we're we're trying to make that as easy as possible and play on android with google play games for pc and chromebooks and I'll mention right now that if you go to, you know, g.co slash Android slash games, developers can express interest in the program as we expand. There's going to be a way for them to participate. Um, and, you know, we, we just want to make it easy for game developers and publishers of all sizes 
to seize that opportunity and and continue to grow not just on mobile but on these these larger screens. That makes so much sense. And and again, as you said, uh, you've got to meet your players where they are in a world where there is more and more content and more and more of that content is freely available. If you have that cut through, if you can make it as simple as possible for the player to choose um, how they participate, then it means you're you're kind of removing as many barriers as you possibly can. And let's be honest, in, in the uh, incredibly quickly uh, growing market out there, um, the player is king. You know, they've got so many other uh, options for what to do with their time. So once you've got them, you want to keep them there and make it as easy for them as possible to stay with you. You know, you've got to keep an eye on that lifetime value, right? Yeah, no, I think you, you got it, right? And I think like if there's a theme of what we talked about today is that there's there's just the emerging recipe, right? It's, you know, it's getting to all those devices, designing up front for, for multi-screen, you know, even if you're starting on mobile um, and giving yourself the option to expand and then thinking about like how you foster that community, you know, how do you keep that content pipeline sustainable? You know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's not a sprint, right? It's, it, it, it's an endurance run in many cases now. And if you, if you think about that recipe up front and you organize your game production and your publishing strategies accordingly, there's, there's just, it's just never been a larger opportunity for for video games in in, in history, um, and and I find that incredibly exciting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. You've, you, you know, you have this enormous new audience, and they don't come with the kind of the preconceived expectations that you find on some of the other devices. The you know the more established game specific um, hardware, and so yeah, you've got to optimize for opportunity. And give yourself the best possible chance of, of having that breakout hit. Because as we know, you know, it, it only takes a couple of days um, and you can go from an obscure little indie title through to hitting that mainstream audience. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, you have an, an entirely new problem, which is, oh, dear God, how do we keep these people happy? Keep them coming back and keep them engaged with our game for as long as possible. That's right. No plan. Plan for success. You know, I think that that's that's maybe the 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 important insight. Uh, easy to say and hard to do. <laughs> Perfect. And what a note to finish on. So, Greg, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, it was a real pleasure, Brian. A, a great conversation, and and hopefully, you know, we we imparted you know wisdom and thoughts to to those that are that are looking to create thriving mobile game businesses. Well, I think this is the thing, you know, we've got such a a broad audience out there on the uh, the biz side of things as well, you know. The tools and the means of production on video games are now freely downloadable and anyone who has the urge to make a video game can more or less make a video game whether they have the technical and creative skills or whether they're using prepackaged content from marketplaces and in a world where you can go from the enormous global franchises that have sold hundreds of millions through to, you know, the almost disposable nature of hyper casual. I think it's really valuable to to give developers that kind of insight and to sort of let them know your job is not just to make the thing. Your job is to make the thing, but also launch the thing, monetize the thing, and then support the thing for as long as people care to engage with it. So, you know, it's been wonderful. Thank you again. Fingers crossed we can have you back on the podcast at some point soon and learn more about what uh, what Google was doing in this topsy-turvy world of mobile gaming. Sounds great, Brian. Thanks for having me. 
so that was fantastic. Thanks to Greg and thanks to the team at Google for giving us the opportunity to talk. And Kai, I think there was some really valuable insight there for developers of every size, of every kind of stage of their life cycle, whether they're doing their first indie title or, you know, the next major title in a world beating franchise. Yeah, it was good to hear expressed just how important and how difficult ongoing user acquisition is. It's uh, perhaps one of the most important elements in any mobile game's uh, success and uh, nice to have that hammered home. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's there There still seems to be a, a, a general sense in some quarters um, of the, the, the game development creation community that uh, if you just build it and you build it well enough, they will come. And it kind of ignores the reality that there are several hundred thousand, if not, you know, a few million other game creators out there attempting to do exactly the same thing. You know, it's not necessarily the game development that's the primary challenge anymore. It's the user acquisition. It's the monetization. It's the finding your thousand loyal fans and then attempting to to keep them happy on an ongoing basis. Precisely. But we can be heartened, at least, that there are there's such a wealth of tools and platforms which you can explore for your user acquisition. And I think the fact that a company like Google is providing that level of insight and providing those tools and, and ways for developers to understand more about uh, the players, the potential audience out there, and how to bring your game to market. You know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So the old notion, I was guilty of it myself in my my development days, was, um, you know, launch something, early access, and then we'll finish it and we'll iterate it based on player feedback. But you've got to be so careful. You can't just launch something that's just a bit broken and maybe a little poorly thought out and then fix it. Because people have got so many demands on their attention now. There are so many other games out there that they'll move on. And, And unless you are you know, capturing that input and capturing that insight and keeping them motivated and keeping them with you, uh, you can very quickly find yourself it's alone and bereft of players with a game that's still never going to be finished. However, game developers, uh, publishers, service providers are empowered in many ways uh, to reach out to audiences on through new platforms, through new means, uh, just seeing the ways in which uh, games companies are speaking to a new audience through platforms like TikTok, which to an old man like me seems like an entirely alien landscape is really encouraging. It really is. It really is. And I think that's the thing. There there are insights out there. There are platforms, there are tools and technologies that allow you to get out and find that audience and, and engage with that audience in ways that are almost spookily futuristic and alien um, when when it comes to the ways in which games were you know, sold and marketed in the past. It was a dead product on a disc in a box on a shelf versus a live product that you can now, you know, have uh, ongoing events and live ops and all of the cool and fun things. Anyway, I think that's probably about enough from us. What we'll do, as always, we will drop the links for the reports and uh, the updates that Greg mentioned into the show notes. You can find us on pocketgamer.biz forward slash podcast. And we will look forward to seeing you on our next episode coming up in the very near future. Kai, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian. And folks, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Goodbye.